Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Who Killed? I am your host, Bill Huffman. And this is, of course, a Slow Burn Media, Evergreen Podcasts, and Killer Podcast production. On this week's episode, we're going to look at the tragic tale of Patty Desmond, who disappeared on a cold night in December 1965. She had been known to run away, and there was an expectation that she may return home, but the case went cold. And this is where we pick up with author Maureen Boyle, who has just released a book called Child Last Seen, which covers this mysterious case and the tragic case of one 15-year-old, Patty Desmond. So with that being said, let's jump into our conversation with author Maureen Boyle. How are you doing today, Maureen? Very good, and thanks for having me. It's always a fun time on your show. I love being on your show. Well, thank you very much. And you have once again been busy, and you never seem to slow down. And uh, what that means is you've got another book out, and this book covers uh, five decades worth of investigations, and give me a little bit of, uh, in the audience, a little bit of a taste of what what the title is and uh, how this book turned out. The title is Child Last Seen, The Search for Patty Desmond. It's set in Pennsylvania. And it starts in 1965 when a 15-year-old girl uh, snuck out of her house and was never seen again by her family. It, it is sort of an offshoot, but not a complete offshoot. I learned about this, this case uh, when I was investigating and writing my second book, uh, The Ghost, the, hunt for, the Murder of Police Chief Greg Adams and the Hunt for His Killer. Uh, one of the investigators um, in Pennsylvania, state police investigator, who was uh, a road trooper at the time uh, the chief was killed, uh, when I was talking to, to him, he mentioned this case and said this would make a very interesting book. And he began talking to me about it, and I did find it fascinating. You know, you really have to go back in time with this book. You go back to 1965, before there were Amber Alerts, uh, before there was social media. Some people may find it difficult to believe that, yes, there was a time before social media, before cell phones, you know, uh, when people had rabbit ears on their TV. In this case, this girl, she was uh, one of six children. Her father had died when she was seven. Her mother was a single mother, working very hard to support six kids, working multiple jobs. For some reason, Patty got involved with a much an older man. Uh, you know, when you're 15, anyone who's out of high school is really an inappropriate uh, individual to be dating. Uh, the person that she got involved with was a uh, 19-year-old named Conrad Miller, who had a criminal record by that time. He was married, and he had an infant child. A busy yes, man very, before very busy. 19. And in, 
Patty was very, very shy. She was bullied. Um, you know, and sometimes girls that are that age are attracted to what a lot of women call the bad boys when they are uh, teenagers. And this guy was paying attention to her. And she was flattered by it. And she got involved with him. Uh, her mother strongly objected to it. On the night that Patty went missing, her mother had a argument with Patty telling her to stay away from this guy. Uh, Patty slipped out of the house, hopped in uh, this guy, uh, Conrad Miller's car, and took off with him and his friends. Uh, Conrad dropped off his friends, telling him, well, yeah, we'll, we'll hook up later on, and Patty was never seen alive again. Next day, her mother notified the police. Police obviously interviewed Conrad Miller and a number of other people trying to retrace her steps. He told police that he dropped her off near a fire hall, and that was it. Police did not believe, believe him at the time, but they couldn't prove anything otherwise. They couldn't disprove his story. They kept on pushing him, kept on interviewing other people. There was a lot of false sightings of where Patty was. Uh, fast forward a number of years, state police then get involved. Patty's sister asked someone who was involved in the court system, how come the police aren't still looking for my sister? And then he got in touch with the state police and a new investigation started. State police then re-interviewed everyone, uh, did, some, did a lot of extensive work at that time and still could not uh, determine exactly what happened to Patty. They did suspect that she was dead. And they did have a prime suspect who was Conrad Miller. Eventually, the trail went, went cold because they couldn't arrest him because they had no proof that he did her any harm. You get into 1985, someone came forward and eventually the case was solved. What I found fascinating about this case is that it really illustrates what happens when people do the right thing, when they follow their, their moral star, if you will, and look at what is the right thing to do. People often, they battle in their head and in their hearts, do I tell or do I not tell? What is the right thing? Who will get mad at me? Who will this harm on both sides? And the person who came forward, it was very difficult for the individual to come forward. And I go into great detail on that issue in the book um, about sure. how difficult the, the person uh, found it to come forward. But it was the right thing to do, and sometimes people have to turn into their hearts and be grounded in what they believe is the right thing to do. And, and that's what, what um, happened in this case. This is also a case of justice. Uh, can you ever find justice uh, when it comes to a murder case? I mean, it, it isn't a spoiler that Patty was dead. Uh, you kind of assume that right from the start. But in all of these cases and in all of the murder cases that I've covered, both as a newspaper reporter and as a book author, um, there is always that sense of, is there ever justice? When someone is dead, and even when someone is prosecuted, that doesn't bring the individual back. You know, we've all heard the line up from victims and their fa from victims' families saying, you know, at least the 
killer's family can visit him or her in prison, we have to go to the cemetery. And this case, like so many others, leaves you with that that same very sad uh, feeling and, and outcome. This is set in a very small community in western Pennsylvania. Uh, this is a community where people don't lock their doors, where there isn't a lot of crime, sure. where you don't expect things like this to happen. Uh, it's a very hardworking community, uh, very rural. In 1965, what kids would do is you know, ride horses and ride their bikes for miles and miles and miles. Their neighbors might be a mile away. They wouldn't, there was no reason to go to an adjoining town unless you knew people who lived there. Families are very, very close. Everyone knew each other. People stay there. Not unlike the community in my first book, Shallow Graves, that was in New Bedford, which is a small city where people are born there, they work there, they die there, they have large families, um, and everyone is interconnected. Uh, That is the same in uh, this part of Pennsylvania, where everyone knows everyone, and, you know, the the roots go very, very deep. So people remember things. How many people live in that community? In the different towns, it ranges from 1,000 to about 5,000 in a smaller community. Very intimate, particularly in that time, during that time period. Very, very intimate. You know, the largest city is Butler, which is also a very small town, a small city. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not that far where Patty went missing. Uh, It's not that far from Saxonburg, where uh, Police Chief Greg Adams had been killed. So it's, um, it's a very intimate, intimate community and a lovely community. And everyone who is there are... It involves people who are good, hardworking individuals. And to see something like this happen and go unsolved for so long is really, really heartbreaking. And what's interesting about the case is that many people didn't even know about about this case. And not unlike the murder of police chief Greg Adams. Greg Adams, you know, his murder was well publicized in Pennsylvania. But in Massachusetts, where his killer was uh, found, uh, was from, there was like zero press. It was like one or two stories. People didn't even know about the case. And in this case, the disappearance of Patty, as I went through the archival newspapers, I could not find any articles about her disappearance uh, because she was treated, yes, she was treated as a runaway. Uh, and during that period of time, particularly 1965, so we have to go back to 1965 in all of this. In 1965, that is, you know, the era of uh, flower children uh, going off to find yourself. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And and there was no, you know, Amber Alerts and there was no database of missing persons. So when a 15 year old goes missing, there was always a tendency to think, okay. She's run away and she's going off to a better life. Uh, and in this case, that was not, that was not what happened. The case is very interesting in the sense that you had a girl who was, she probably felt 16. She felt like she could go out and be an adult and she was seeing an older guy. It was empowering to her. And then for her to be, you know, 
it was pretty normal for her to sneak out like she not, did? Not really. Um, you know, she would go out. Okay. But uh, in a situation like that, when she snuck out, when her mother told her not to, that was, uh, I think, very surprising to the family. The mother, one of her, Patty's older sister, told me that the mother sometimes would would lock the back door because it was one of those key locks where there's a lock on the inside and hang on to the key. And that's why Patty went out through the uh, through the basement that day. Her mother thought, oh, poor, mm. you know, she's not going anywhere because I got the key. Recovered. And she still snuck out. And the Conrad Miller, I saw some, uh, one of his mug shots from that era. And he looks very, very different than how he looks today. During that period of time, someone described him as, uh, he looked like James Dean. And when you look at his mugshot, you can see, you know, thin face, the hair. He had that bad boy motorcycle look, uh, even though he wasn't on a motorcycle, but he had that, that look that, you know, young girls who were, think that they're older than they are and they're looking for a true love and he's paying attention to her. that you could, you just understand how it all happened. Definitely. I mean, I think it's, it's so easy, especially in 1965, where, you know, I mean, you mentioned it earlier about the difference between being in high school and dating somebody and being in high school and dating somebody. And it's that is an interesting perspective to have, because obviously there's a lot more life experience there. I think that's the attraction sort of to that person is that, oh, look at, you know, he is the bad boy. He knows, look at look what he's done and uh, check this out. And it's very attractive to an impressionable teen. And just, it's almost human nature for her to fall for that type of person. And it's not anything against, it's not like she did anything wrong. You know, I don't want it to sound like that she, just because she was dating somebody older that she was, you know, it's not like he was... <laughs> But, but she was she was just a kid, and she was a sophomore in high, she was a sophomore in high she school. She was, she was. And he was married with a kid, and nineteen. And well, when you are in your thirties, that well, that <laughs> that part is the definite uh, big difference in in this case, criminal record, child, and he was married. So I mean, trifecta of awfulness <laughs> uh, those are all red flags now if as she if she had a chance to be older you know women who are in their you know late 20s or 30s or even early 20s uh, they have more maturity they have more life experience uh, they could see those red flags but when you have someone who's 15 where they think they might know it all or they're looking for true love this fantasy a uh, true love that's that's how these things can happen. And that's how they can be used and abused. And, you know, that's why we have laws involving minors. So he was, and, and also that age difference. If you're in your 20s, that age difference isn't as big because of your maturity level. But when you are a teenager, it is huge. I agree with that take. And it is, it sounds like she was just kind of just looking for a good time and probably just got caught up in a situation that she was not ready for and who really is you're getting involved with a married man she was looking for love you know and 
it, it was a fantasy for sure. her, you know, finding true love and that sort of thing. As, as you know, 14, 15-year-old girls often do. They, they just don't get it because they don't have the maturity. In 1965, did they have yes. those laws on the book or was yeah. that... Okay. Yeah. I was just wondering if that had been something that they've, like, yeah. course corrected on. And, you know, you've seen that... I mean, you see that in different states. I mean, some states, you can legally get married at 16, and it's like, okay, that's weird. In most states, you need uh, parental permission. Yeah. Sure, but still. It's still, it's still I mean. far too young. It's yeah, definitely <laughs> still, far too young. It's it is. It really weird. is. Um, but, you know, we have yes. to remember, uh, we have to, when, we're re- when, I, when I was doing the research for the book, I have to keep in mind that, this was a different era. This is a different place. Now, I'm from the Northeast. I've always lived in, in New mm-hmm. England. And I've lived in most primarily cities. So my life experience is very, very different than someone who's been living in the country. 100%. Particularly in a rural area. So when I was writing and doing the research, I really had to put aside any of my preconceived notions of what life should have been and what anyone should have done because that wasn't the opportunities that were available at that time. Even opportunities for Patty's mother. You know, she had six kids. She was a widow. So she was the sole breadwinner in the family. And women made, uh, during that period of time, far less than men, even for the same job. So she was always scrambling for for money to pay the rent, to put food on the table, and do the best that she can. And as a result of that, or a reflection of that, I should say, you know, there wasn't that much money available for the family. Patty would wear hand-me-downs. Uh, she would get bullied at school. She would get teased at school. She didn't have the best of teeth. She had one tooth that protruded. So, and she was very... She's very quiet, very shy, really didn't stick up for herself. So you have this type of a a child and someone's paying attention to her. Um, It's it's almost empowering. Or she's thinking, oh, this is my my Prince Charming. And it wound up being uh, far from it. So I guess the question is, what did he see in her if she was sort of this, you know, she wasn't the belle of the ball. You know, if he if he's being considered James Dean uh, at that time, what what would she be considered? Well, he would uh, go out with a number of women, even though he had a wife and a kid. Some people have told me he he's had, nineteen. Yeah, uh, so he he was uh, carousing quite a bit, out drinking with his friends all the time, and. She was just one of men that were out there, just one of many. Gotcha. You know, she may she may have thought, okay, you know, oh, this is the one, because you know she's looking at it, you know, very doe-eyed, and he is just thinking, oh, this is just another, another chick on the side, so to speak, which is uh, just very sad. So I guess, oh, it's terrible. It, it's this is a, a tragic story. I mean, it's it's sort of like the damsel in distress gets rescued and then the rescuer turns out to be a sociopath murderer you know that's 
definitely not what she was looking for. And I feel for her and I feel for her family. Where in line was she with her sisters as far as, you know, you said, I think you mentioned she had an older sister, as f- yeah. but she had six siblings, so, or five. Yeah, there was uh, three girls and three boys. She was the youngest girl. When she went missing, uh, both of his, her older sisters were out of the house and married. She, uh, two of her brothers were out of the house. It was only her younger brother uh, who was uh, still at home. Um, and her youngest, the youngest boy was younger than Patty and was very, very close to her. I think he took, he has since passed on, but he took her disappearance very, very, very hard because he was always thinking, uh, people have told me he was always thinking I should have done something to stop her that that night, even though he was he was you know younger sure. than her and it was I think he was twelve at the time and there was nothing that he could have done to to change things because who would have thought that that would have been the last time that he saw her alive? Now, what was the age gap between the sisters? Because it just is interesting to think that they are both married and maybe she's trying to fulfill that aspect of her life as well five years and the oldest i believe was several years older than that so we're talking five to seven to eight years older yeah yeah you just know what i'm saying like where you don't yeah. you want what you don't have and you see your friend your friends or your family and think oh well that would be awesome and even though she's not of age i guess by dating somebody older, she's sort of yep. getting a little bit of taste. I took it of out of the house, and... a way to have her own, a way to have her own home. You know, to try to be sure older than she is, to have that white picket fence type of thing. I'm sure that's what she was looking for. You know, a home of her own, a place of her own. It's sad when you think about what she wanted and then what ended up happening because her intentions were nothing but and now the, the man um last seen who last saw her of course he had a criminal record and even after she disappeared you know his the charges against him on other crimes just one after another after another uh in south carolina in pennsylvania he did some serious 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 time for rape and robbery and a variety of other things so we're not talking about someone who was like, oh, something. There, there was some serious crimes that he was charged with after she was went missing. What was the crime that he had committed before he met Patty? He had a lot of uh, B&Es, you know, assaults, you know, that type of thing. Nothing major, but he still did, you know, in and out of, out of jail. Nothing major, but on a path of... <laughs> Definitely on, the, on path. the path. And he was the type of person, you know, today, uh, a lot of cops would call them frequent flyers, where they are always uh, getting arrested, uh, so they, they know who they are by name. They see him on the street. Uh, he, one of the... He was one of those. One of the investigators said he was... This guy was always uh, referred to as a toad, which is a, a phrase I had never heard before. I found that that interesting that they that's what they would call him, which was another word for frequent flyer, mm-hmm. someone who is always in and out, <laughs> in okay. and out of handcuffs. Um, that's I, I had to have someone explain it to me, and then I realized that is another you know perhaps a regional description of what uh, in the Northeast we 
uh, a New England call a frequent flyer. You know, who knows what it is in the South and who knows what it is out West. And it, uh, yeah. Yep. And, and what is interesting about this case is once they were able to get more information about where Patty was, they were able to solicit help from the University of uh, Pittsburgh and some grad students there in, in ultimately solving the case. The, uh, what I like about... And what year would this have been? I'm sorry. This 1985. Okay. And that's when they got uh, they the funding? They got a little bit of funding to, uh, to be able to find her. But what, what, is, what I find fascinating about all of this is, and this is one of the reasons why I like going back in time in a lot of these uh, murder cases, is you get to see the start of people's careers. The people that were involved with the, from the University of Pittsburgh that helped uh, Pennsylvania State Police in ultimately solving this case uh, so that they could press charges. Uh, one of them became an FBI agent and was really prominent in the recovery of remains throughout the country through his, uh, through his work. The other one, uh, Dennis Dirkmat, he is considered the, and I did not know this initially, but he is considered one of the premier people in the country, if not the world, in the recovery of human remains. And this was his, his first big case as a student. And it's one that really sticks with him. So as a result of this, uh, of this case, I had to do a, a lot of scientific research and reading, read a lot of reports on recovering remains and what they look for and, you know, looking up different types of dis- you know, the descriptions. And then I don't want to use the word dumb it down, but make it readable so the average person understands what this is. Because, you know, I was a journalism, and Engl- uh, journalism major, English minor. I stayed away from all science, all math, foreign languages. You know, they all made my head hurt. All of those subjects. I just couldn't do it. I think that goes for a lot of us journalists. Yes. <laughs> so what happens in life, as we all know, is all the stuff that you avoided all of those years, it all comes back to bite you in the proverbial you-know-what. Because what am I, and this is the first time this has happened, where I have to deal with science and scientific research, uh, things I don't have a background in, but I now find absolutely fascinating. And talking to uh these wonderful experts and who are so patient has been so enlightening to me. And I'm, I'm just so thankful, but I really wish I had paid attention to that, you know, chemistry and geology courses and some of those other things I had to take that might've helped me a little bit, but probably not. I was just (laughs) going to say, you know, we want to look back and we want to have (laughs) rose colored glasses and say, Oh yeah, we would have totally embraced that. Yeah. Yeah. No. There's a reason we no. avoided all that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Or even math. I am. I am oh, one of God. those people that that I I still count on my fingers. My husband laughs at me because trying to. Well, this is what what percentage of this is this, and I'm like I don't know. <laughs> um, I'll figure it out on a calculator. Where's my iPhone? <laughs> yes. That's what we've all all learned after a while. All the things that we avoided do you do really do need to know it. And all these book, all of my books so far made that very, very clear. I mean, I'm not going to run out and um, take any uh, science classes. 
I'm not going to enroll and become a biology major or anything like that, but I will embrace um, and find it fascinating uh, talking with those who have made this their, their life's work and translating it to the average person so they can really appreciate the importance of science and scientific research and all the things that we've all avoided, not all of us, but most of us have avoided all our lives. It's its really important, and I'm, I'm just so glad that people have taken the time to explain things and share their stories with me. Yeah, I was going to ask you. go back in time. Yeah. Who, who was the most uh, helpful for you in researching this book as far as, you know, the science and the, you know, just the whole discovery and the search for remains who who would who would you say was the standout usually there's one uh, or two yeah uh danny mcknight who was the primary investigator in the case uh he is the one who turned me on to the case so to speak um he's the one who said you have to do this uh, this story and provided me with a bulk of the information about about the case which is really important you know reports and you know paperwork and then I was able to go to uh, to the, the court in Butler County uh, to pull out all of the, the court records. But like with any of these types of uh, cases, when I'm, you interview people, I know I'm going all over the place, sort of scattered, but in these type of cases, you need the paperwork and the specific hard facts before you can do anything else, because people's uh, memories can be kind of wonky. Oh, um, yeah. But they remember how they felt. So when I interview people, sometimes their memory of a time and a place may be slightly off. That doesn't mean that they're lying. It just means truly they are misremembering. I'll tell them, you know, I'm going to go back to the official record and we're going to, you know, use that in terms of times and dates and things like that. But when I'm interviewing people, I'm getting information about how they felt and you know why certain things were done and how how they uh, approach things, uh, what their emotions are. So the people I interview, that's where I got the emotion from. The court records and police records, that's where you get the hard facts. Danny McKnight was able to give me both. People in the courthouse were uh, just a great help in helping me uh, obtain some records. The libraries are, you know, librarians. I absolutely love them. They know where everything is. You know, you can't say enough about them. But um, Danny and all of the uh, investigators from that time, Glenn Hall, there's, there's just there's about five investigators who were just the absolute best. And they also took me to the, the site, a couple of the sites, the main sites were... Uh, key elements of the, the story took place. And I got to see where, you know, see coal mines, uh, the strip mines where some of the the action, so to speak, took place. And it was not how I imagined it, which I, which I found interesting. So it was, you know, in my head, I thought it would look one way. And when I see it, it's, it's different. Certain relatives of of the suspect were, were very helpful in terms of their mindset and how they felt and also giving their, uh, their emotion and the, uh, and how they, why they did what they did. 
It's amazing how these investigators are so invested still in certain cases and then so willing to work with a journalist or an author to tell the story. Because as you said, this story was basically unknown to a lot of people. And it's super important to really get these stories out there because she was a person that, you know, was missing for years and years and to think that it took a team to finally find some closure or whatever you want to call it because we know that's not necessarily the proper because there's no such thing when it comes to murder but it's amazing how these guys work together and then all these years later they can come and use the technology that they now have at their disposal to do what they needed to do and could have done if they would have had those tools potentially back then. That's an excellent point, especially with this case. If they had the tools that we have today, I think the this case would have been solved much earlier, but they didn't. So it gives people an insight, these older cases, an insight into all of the work that it takes to solve a murder. And it is very much, you know, boots on the ground, knocking on doors, interviewing people. That is really what the most of these cases are based on and how they're solved. Today, in some ways, I think we're a little bit uh, spoiled. Everyone is thinking, oh, there's got to be DNA. DNA is going to solve everything. But it doesn't. It's not the end all. Uh, sometimes there is no DNA in cases. Sometimes, in, particularly in older cases, you may not have DNA because DNA can be degraded or improperly stored. Or they just didn't think about it because it wasn't a thing. Yeah, it didn't exist like in the yeah. 1960s. I mean, that is not what people... You can't future, you can't think like, oh, well, maybe. I mean, and kudos to the people in the 70s that did start to like, there were more opportunities of technologies and things like that where they did start to save more of the stuff just in case. But in 1965, that's not even imaginable. It definitely was not. I think it really does show the hard work that goes into these cases and the commitment that law enforcement had in in trying to solve these type of cases, as well as the barriers that they had. You know, today, cell phones that can be pinged off of uh, different towers, there is DNA, there are cameras everywhere. Even some of the, you can even track some vehicles, but that was not the case then. So it really was just knocking on doors and having that gut feeling that something is not right. In this case, all the investigators, including the original investigators in the case, always had a bad feeling of what happened. They had a good idea what may have happened, but they couldn't prove it. They could not prove that it was just a you know, quote unquote, runaway, runaway team. And it was, you know, obviously it was not a run. She was not a runaway. And this Conrad Miller, I mean, you would think that they would have really put the screws to him, tightened him, knowing that he had all of those things that sort of were red flags. It's a shame that they didn't get as much out of him as they'd hoped for. You hope that they do, but yeah, he, 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 they pushed him and pushed him and brought him in and brought him in and brought him in. Uh, but he, they could not shake his story, even, if even though they didn't believe it. 
They could not shake his story. Yeah, and again, that goes back to what you were just saying about if there were cameras and easily you could say, oh, well, why was your car in this over this area at this yeah. time? And nowadays that's so simple. But back in yes. 1965, that was just not even in... Yeah, yeah back, in, back in 65, investigators were very much like, like Sherlock Holmes in terms of following actual quote-unquote clues. Today, they still do that, but there is a larger scientific bent to it. It's uh, changed in many, many, many different ways as far as investigations go. As far as Patty's case goes, is there anything that we haven't talked about as far as, you know, like, you know, I don't want to give away like any of the important stuff that's in the book because I want people to go and buy the book. Um, so do I. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we've covered, you know, obviously the nuts and bolts of this particular case. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that as a reader you think that that would be uh, something that would bring them to the book? I think if you're looking for a story of heartbreak, of intrigue, uh, sort of a thriller, and also a step back into history. This is a book that uh, book for you. It really gives you good insight into law enforcement. It gives you good insight into 1965. Uh, it gives you good insight into what women faced during that period of time, what all families did during that time, how cases fell through the cracks. I think people today often are too judgmental in uh, when it comes to some cold cases of, well, why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? I think this book explains why certain things are done and why they were done a certain way back then. doesn't mean that, yes, could things have been done differently? Yes and no. There's, there were limits uh, back then. But I, I think it's, it'll be a, an enlightening read and a, I don't want to say feel good, because when it comes to murder, there is nothing to feel good about. But it does give gives you a sense of faith in a community and faith in humanity and faith that people do do the right thing. And I think that's very encouraging for all of us to know, particularly in these times where you know people seem to be going at each other. This really does um, highlight that people will take that extra step, people will face criticism to do the right thing, uh, even when it is hard. And I think that is one of the key elements in this book, how one person really overcame the fear that uh, what would happen when they um, did the right thing. It's certainly an incredible book, and it definitely shows the never give up attitude of the investigation. And I think that is what kind of resonates the most is that there are people out there that care a lot. And even if they're not family or whatever, these are important things to them as well as to the community. And for them to go and put in that extra effort, extra work, extra time, to bring some sense of an ending to this particular story, it's just hats off to them. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly on that, that point. How many of the family members are still like sisters, siblings, 
still alive? Uh, there are only two siblings still alive. Um, oh wow! The uh, her sister was, uh, you know, I interviewed her sister. Her brother um, chose not to talk with me, which is fine. That is his right. Sure. Her sister was absolutely wonderful, and uh, I'm just glad I was able to tell Patty's story. So she isn't just a a footnote in in a case because when when the case was uh, first re- ultimately resolved. I think the focus was on the killer as opposed to the victim. And uh, Patty was portrayed in, I think, in very much an unfair light, you know, whether that's because of the time and attitudes at that time. But I, I wanted to do her justice because it really, at that time, people didn't realize that she was a kid. Yes. And it, it wasn't highlighted enough. Yeah, you hate to see the perpetrator be the one that becomes the center of the story when it really is the victim that should be the focus. And as far as your book, where can people find it? And what are some of the other titles that you have written? You can find Child Last Seen at Barnes Noble. Uh, it's on barnesandnoble.com. You can also order it from your, if your local Barnes Noble store doesn't have it, just ask them to order it for you if you don't like doing online stuff. It, it's available on Kindle. The last I checked on Amazon, it was sold out, but they're getting more copies there. So, and I think books a million and wherever you get books, if you don't see it in the store, ask and they can uh, they can order it. It's through Black Lion Publishing. So it's, it's out there. It's out in the wild. It just um, came out. It just came out. It just came out. And a um, the audio book should come out probably in the next month or so. That's exciting. Uh, my, yes. My other books are uh, Shallow Graves, A Hunt for the New Bedford Highway Serial Killer, also another true crime book, and The Ghost, uh, The Murder of Police Chief Greg Adams, and The Hunt for His Killer. The two hunt books, and this is a search book. <laughs> you know, you've got a niche, and uh, I'm lucky to uh, get to interview about each of these books every yeah. time that uh, you yeah. release a new hey. one. <laughs> I, I so appreciate it. And if anyone wants to follow me on Twitter, it's Maureen E. Boyle 1 on Twitter. I've got an author Facebook page. I'm on Instagram. I think it's Maureen Boyle or Maureen E. Boyle, something like that. Um, it's easy to find me. And I've got two websites, uh, MaureenBoyleWriter.com and Shallow Graves, the book. I'll throw the links in the show notes. Anyone who wants to reach out to me, please do. And anyone, also anyone who knows who the New Bedford Highway serial killer is, has any information on that case, please get in touch with me. I will make sure that the proper authorities get the information. So uh, in the, particularly in that case, which is um, a case that's near and dear to my heart, anyone who knows anything about that case, please, please, please reach out to me. Well, Maureen, it has been a pleasure having you on the show once again, and I can't thank you enough for giving me so much time of your day, and I wish you nothing but the best of luck and the fact that it's already sold out on Amazon. Kudos. All right. Good. Thank you so much, and it's always a pleasure to be on your show. It really is. Yeah, well, it's always a pleasure to have you on, and again, thank you so much. Thank you so much to Maureen Boyle for taking time out of her very busy schedule. She is an incredible writer and a great journalist. So if you have the opportunity to pick up one of her books, I highly suggest it. And again, you can find her 
in the show notes. I will provide links. As you guys know, I do drop new episodes every Friday. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do so at BillHuffman3 or on Instagram at slow underscore burn media. And that is slow minus the W. So again, thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. I really do appreciate you and wouldn't be here without it. So thanks so much. And again, as always, stay healthy and be safe. Hi, podcast listeners. I'm Carol Costello, a former CNN anchor and national correspondent. This January, I'm launching a podcast about one of the first cases I ever covered as a journalist. It's one that stuck with me all of these years, the one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. It's a true crime series about an amazing woman named Phyllis Cottle who defied torture and death and brought a fierce rage to the quest to find her attacker. Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.